0: Good morning, Um, we're now going to turn to our Bibles in John chapter 5. Let's remind ourselves this is the book of books, this is the book of God that we're going to be reading from. John chapter 5 and verse number 1, after this there was a feast When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. May God's words uh, touch our hearts uh, today. Another miracle. Uh, this is the third of the signs, of the seven signs that John compiles and selects in his account. And it's a sign that is full of, of surprises. It's much more public. It's not a way up in the backwaters of Cana in Galilee. As you can see, it's in Jerusalem, in the capital. It's called a Feast of the Jews. Lots of people around. Um, Interestingly that it's called a Feast of the Jews, actually. um, Usually these things should have been called the Feasts of the Lord. But it had been kind of corrupted. When the word the Jews is used here, it's a kind of technical term. It's not talking about all Jews. It's actually highlighting the religious elite these are the jews if you look down at verse number 18 who were seeking all the more to kill him there were three times in the year when all males were expected to appear before the lord in jerusalem and uh, these were the three major feasts we don't know what one this one was doesn't tell us but if you look back to chapter two It talks about the Feast of the Passover then. And the next one in line was one called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost 50 days afterwards. And in all likelihood, that is the feast. But it had been corrupted, you know. It's now a feast of the Jews, you know, and it's now kind of dominated by their religious views. And it's not what it was meant to be. And it's on this occasion that Jesus presents himself in uh, jerusalem and he does that verse two by a place called the sheep gate now very interesting lots of gates with colorful names uh, in the city of jerusalem if you were to read in nehemiah chapter three you would find some of these colorful names this is the sheep gate there was one called the fish gate there was one called the fountain gate there was even one called the dung gate you know why was it called the sheep gate? Well, this gate was very near where the temple was. And it was this gate through which they brought the sheep and they brought the lambs that were to be taken to the temple that would be used as sacrifices in the temple. And isn't it very interesting that the Lord Jesus, knowing all of that, walks through he is going to be the ultimate lamb of God that would take away the and, and knowing all of that he walks through the sheep gate but that's just by the way there's a pool there the name of the pool is called Bethesda and the meaning of that word means uh, the house of mercy and uh, as you can see from the description there were five roofed colonnades you know porches and uh, this place is, a, although it's called a place of mercy, the mercy pool, it's a place of misery, actually. You know, the place is packed full of, of invalids, people with disability and illnesses. If you think of that, five big colonnaded porches, you know, if in one, you know, you would have thought there was, you know, dozens of people, you times it by five, it actually says there was a multitude of people I mean it was a picture of absolute wretchedness and misery just packed with with people with all kinds of of disease and disability and you know as we see here you know some of them have been there an awful long time this man I don't know if it was the longest but he's been there in that very place for 38 years again that's probably appropriate in the symbolism of all that's going to happen here Because 38 years was something significant for this nation. That was the number of years that the children of Israel had been forced to wander in the wilderness as part of their history after they rebelled against God, taking them out of Egypt. They wandered about in the wilderness until that whole generation died off before they entered into the promised land. Interesting that 38 is mentioned here as far as this man is concerned. And this is the man that the Lord Jesus identifies. You know, the situation is kind of compounded by something else. You know, the the comment that the man makes about how helpless he is, that uh, every time that, you know, people want to try and get into this pool, you know, it's like there's a stampede. You know, it's every man for himself. He had nobody to help him. Nobody was interested His disability and his illness was just compounded by the fact that nobody cared for him and didn't give him a helping hand. Everybody just tried to get in there first because they thought that this was the way that they would be healed. So it's a really wretched kind of picture. And into that picture, at this place called Bethesda, the house of mercy, Christ enters. And he's going to heal this man and he's going to demonstrate God's mercy to this man. No, and that's a wonderful thing for us just to focus in on again this morning. God will be merciful to us. You know, in our wretchedness, in our our situation before God of, of, of being helpless, spiritually diseased, you know, with nobody to help us, Christ can show us mercy and, and God's love and his compassion. Now there are a number of very surprising events that are now about to take place, and and these are what I want to, to point out to you. So surprising event number one, Christ's question. Did you notice that? The question was this, so do you want to be healed? Seems a bit unusual. Been there for 38 years, you know. Do you want to be healed? I mean, you would think it was pretty obvious that he would want to be healed. But listen, you know, it's not such a surprising question after all if you think about it. As you know, you know, I see patients most days, and there are some people who adopt what we often call the sick role. And they they gain benefits from having the sick role you know I'm not just talking about financial benefits you know although some of them do you know but sympathy and sometimes a degree of manipulation you know in the situation the family situation that they find themselves in and in fact they're quite happy to remain in that situation and if you ask them they really don't want to get any better because of all the benefits that accrue to them from living their life having the sick role. Now we can apply that, and this is exactly, of course, what the Lord Jesus is doing to this man, spiritually speaking. Am I quite happy in my situation? Quite content with my life and the way things are playing out and panning out and all the way? Do I actually want to be healed? Do I actually want to, Christ to impact my life and to change my life and to show me his mercy ask ourselves the question do I actually want to be healed it's very interesting don't know if you pick this one up if you look very closely at your Bible again you'll see there is no verse 4 see that it jumps from verse 3 to verse five. Now the reason for that is that until they discovered some of the older manuscripts, <clears throat> there was a verse four. But now they reckon that that was added in, and that wasn't there at all. What did verse four actually say? Well, you, you get some sort of allusion to that later down, when the man says, "You know, I've got nobody to help me into the water when the water stirred up," because what the verse four says. Is that an angel used to come down and used to work up the waters. And uh, the people, they believed that whoever got in there first, well, they were going to be healed. It's just kind of hocus pocus, to be honest. You know, this is just legend. This is just superstition. This is just what the people thought. They all bought into it. That's why they're all packed into these colonies there, you know. And this is what they believed rather than believing that it was Christ who was the one who was able to help them. Now isn't this interesting? How superstition, cultural belief, legend, fairy stories, and religion can get in all of our ways and obscure the facts and obscure the reality of the gospel of God. And it happens the world over. And it happens in our land all the time. People locked into cultural belief and locked into the religion of their families or of their fathers, and they just can't get beyond that. And it stops them getting to the reality of the gospel. You know, we need to try our best to strip that away and, as Duncan was telling us, to come to the book of God and read it for ourselves without any kind of influence. Kind of trying to, to change that. You know, the man says when Jesus asks him about being healed, it's kind of pitiful, really, isn't it? He says, You know, I've got nobody. Nobody. I've got no man. Everybody just for themselves. He's going to find that there's somebody on his side who does care. You know, maybe, maybe there's somebody here today, and you feel a little bit like that too. I just don't have anybody. In the wonderful, tremendous story of the gospel is of Christ's love and his direct interest in all of our lives. So that, so that we, we need not say, none of us need to say, I've got nobody, I've got no man to help me. That, that's the whole point of the gospel, is to present the glory of the love of Christ to each that? That was the surprising first point, Christ's question. Surprising point number two was the reason that this miracle was performed in the first place. Now, most of the miracles are signposts, we've learned that, that point to Christ so that people will understand who he is and will then believe in him. If you come down to the conclusion of this miracle, it's the very opposite. It's persecution. It actually says that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to to kill him. This miracle is very surprising because it is set up, actually, to be a confrontation. The Jews... In their belief, are being confronted with Christ, deliberately. I mean, he chooses to do this on the Sabbath day, because he knows it will provoke a reaction. It was a challenge that's been the gauntlet has been thrown down to the Jews, so that they will begin to think, "Wait a minute, we've got our preconceived ideas." about what should and what should not happen on the Sabbath day. We're pretty fixed on that. We're pretty certain on that. Have we got it right? Should we be thinking again? Should we be reflecting on that? Should we be giving it a second thought? Maybe we've got it wrong. But in fact, rather than thinking about what Christ confronts them with, they become even more set in their opposition to Christ. I mean, what they what they failed to understand, what, what Christ was, was driving them towards was to think about what the Sabbath really was meant to be. Now, they had imposed all their man-made tradition, all their legalistic views, layer upon layer. People couldn't do anything, you know. I mean, if a chicken laid an egg, it was put in the jail. You know, it was as bad as that. You couldn't do a thing on the Sabbath day. But But what Christ is trying to show them, is it not right that a a person can be healed on the Sabbath? You know? What what, what was the case? Was, Was man made for the Sabbath? Or was the Sabbath made for the benefit of man? Well, it was the latter one. The whole point of the Sabbath was to rest in God. In the same way as at the end of creation, God rested from all his labor, and he said it was good. He looked on it with pleasure and satisfaction, and he enjoyed that. And the whole point of the Sabbath was to be helpful, and so that people might enjoy God in all his fullness. It's God's rest. There were many think about all of that, and actually even more. They were meant to think about the fact that as so much of the Old Testament is, the Sabbath was actually a picture of Christ. It was meant to point them to Christ himself. You know, if you were to read the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, this point's made to you. That there, there exists, there still is a Sabbath day's rest for the people of God. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this. That... We rest from our own works. You know, rather than me trying to earn favour with God, rather than me trying to see that I'm you know earning enough brownie points and you know all this stuff that happens the whole world over as far as religion is concerned, about what people must do to appease and please God. I I rest from that. I leave that behind. I rest from my works. And I rest in Christ. You know, that's where I rest myself. I rest my case, you know, in Christ. That's what he meant himself when he said, Come to me, everyone who labors and is heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. That kind of rest. Rest from all the anxiety and all the fears of my guilt and my past and my sins, that I can rest in the finished work of Christ upon the cross, just rest there completely that He has done what I could never do, and, and that's sufficient, that's enough, that's enough, and I can rest there. That, that's, that's what the Sabbath and much more is meant, to, is meant to point towards. It's meant to point towards Christ, Yet they had corrupted and imposed all these traditions and got it completely wrong. Christ is challenging that. And they don't reflect. They don't think. They, they don't get that at all. Surprising event number three. Jesus finds the man eventually. You know, there's the conversation. Who did this? You know, this is a Sabbath. Shouldn't have happened? Not right. Um eventually Christ meets the man again now that he's healed. He says a very surprising thing. Very surprising thing to the man. And what he says, um, verse 14, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I don't know if there's an implication here as to why the man was sick in the first place. You know, we, two things to be said. Not all illness is caused by sin. It would be very wrong to say that. Terrible thing to say that all people's illness is because of sin. Not at all true. But sometimes that can be the case. We know that very well. People get certain illnesses because of things they've done. Behaviors in their life it happens. You know, we don't know. You know, but I wonder if there could be an implication here. But it's the very fact that Jesus says to him, you know, you be very careful you don't sin in case something worse happens to you. Something worse than 38 years as an invalid lying beside a pool next to rotting humanity. Can there be anything worse? Could you imagine anything worse than 38 long years incarcerated, if you like, in that kind of situation in your life? What hell could be worse than that? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. We need to think about that, actually. You know, a lot of people say, this is hell on earth. You know, this is hell on earth. Make sure you don't experience something worse than this. There, there is something, there is a worse hell. There is a worse thing. And, and, and Jesus is making him alert to that possibility. Surprising thing, number four, is the man's response. Now, this man's been healed immediately, 38 years, and now his life is completely changed. What do you think his reaction should be to Christ? I mean, I would have thought that it would be one of you know, real gratitude. You know, as we read so many times, of people who were who were healed by Christ, the, the gratitude they wanted to follow him, they wanted to worship him, they wanted to be one of his disciples. Not this man. Very surprising. He he, he turns informer. You know, he he sells Christ out. The boys had asked him once, "Who did this?" They said, I, "I don't I don't know. Never seen the man before. But now he's seen him again." And he finds his way back to the Jewish guys. And he says to them, Ah, I know who it is now, actually. This was the man who who did this on the Sabbath day. Now, what is this? Well, I'll tell you what this is. This is the power of intimidation. This is the power that fear has, that grips people. I mean, he's lived his whole life in this context. Of the Jewish leaders, you know, the kind of influence they had on everybody, the kind of power they held. And, you know, he couldn't shake that off. And, and it was such a big thing for him. And the fear had such a grip on him that he was not prepared, you know, to side with Christ. And rather having gratitude, he turns against him and informs against him. Now does that kind of thing still happen? I mean how do we react? How, how do we respond as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ? You know is there the possibility as we think of all that Christ has done you know he left heaven and he became a babe and he humbled himself And he died upon the cross for me. Did all that for me. And I am remarkably unaffected at times by that. I am remarkably insensitive at times to that. I am remarkably blasé about that. And maybe sometimes we are downright opposed to Christ. As this man decided he would become because of other factors in our life. And if you look into your heart, as I'm trying to do this morning as well, and think about my reaction to Christ in light of this, pray God that our, our response will not be like that. That it will be one of worship and a decision to follow and to cry out, or mercy at the pool of mercy if you like point number five the punchline actually of the whole incident the punchline is down in verse number 17 Jesus says to them of course the big issue Sabbath day shouldn't be doing this Jesus says my father is working until now and I am working What's the point? God is always working. It doesn't take the Sabbath as a day off. No, God is working all the time, every day, every minute, you know? He's always active, he's always involved. He never sleeps, he never slumbers. Our breath is always held in his hand. He sustains everything. He upholds the whole universe and he upholds our little lives and he never takes his hand off the rudder. God is always there, always working away. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying here as well. And I am also working all the time. Isn't that wonderful? That is a wonderful message, actually. He worked all the way through history. We worked through the prophets. Worked at the creation of the world. Worked in all the histories of the nations. Worked through the coming of Christ into the world. He was working at the cross. He's working today. He's working through His Word. He's working in our hearts. He's working in our lives. For those of us who are believers, it's wonderful to think about Christ still working at God's right hand as He prays and intercedes and cares for his own people. you will bring everything to a conclusion. According to his purposes. You know God is not absent. He's always working. And Christ. Is always working today. And, and their view of God. Was so defective. They had reduced him. To something that he was not. At all. Their interpretation of the Sabbath had minimized God. Today we need to see Christ in all his glory as he actually is not restricted or corrupted by man-made tradition or religion. That should be no surprise to us that God is always working. The conclusion... Point number six. The final surprise. And it's this. Verse 18. The the Jews are entirely logical. You know, they know how to put two and two together. And what they do here is that they knew that Jesus was claiming by what he said when he said, my father is working, they knew what that meant. They knew that he was placing himself an equality with God, but rather than following that logic through and and confessing Christ and and acclaiming Christ and believing in Him, asking Him for mercy, what do they do? They they make an attempt, of course, to kill Him. Surprising that people can do the sums and reach the wrong conclusion. And yet not so surprising, actually. You would think that people, as they looked at an incident like this, could only come to one conclusion. And yet it is massively surprising that all over the world, maybe even some people in this audience here today, don't reach that conclusion at all. It takes them somewhere else. Here's a sign with lots of surprises. Let's make sure it drives us to the proper conclusion. A place of mercy where Christ can show mercy to us today. Lord, touch our hearts with your word, the possibility of mercy for us, and with the greatness of Christ May our thinking, our attitudes be challenged, help us to reflect upon the truth of Scripture and find our rest, our full rest in Christ alone as we ask in his name. Amen.